Hello, welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. I'm joined today by Jessica Johnson. How's it going, Jessica? It's going well. Uh, Jessica is a first author of a recent manuscript in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition titled The Carbon Isotope Ratios of Non-Essential Amino Acids Identify Sugar-Sweetened Beverage Consumers in a 12-Week Inpatient Feeding Study of 32 Adult Men with Varying Sugar-Sweetened Beverage, or SSB, and Meat Exposures. Quite a mouthful, very declarative, but tells you what it's all about. So thank you for joining us. And I, I think for the audience, it might kind of uh, might be interested in hearing a little bit about your background and um, kind of what led you to undertaking this study. Yeah, thanks for talking to me today. Um, I'm a PhD student right now at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in the lab of Dr. Diane O'Brien. Um, and she's specializing right now in using stable isotope ratios as nutritional biomarkers. So I actually did my master's in Louisiana in coastal ecology, salt marsh ecology specifically. So I'm actually coming from a completely different field. And it was in a project studying the salt marsh food web that I learned what stable isotope ratios were. Um, They're really cool signatures that we can detect in nature um, that basically tell us about ecological and in humans dietary um, trends in individuals. That's super, super cool. I love, uh, I love doing some isotope work and it's awesome to hear that you're coming from ecology to nutrition. I think it's always fun when fields sort of blend their methods together. There's a lot to be gleaned. For the listener who's maybe a little bit uninitiated into what isotopes are and, and what carbon isotopes are, can you, uh, give a little background explainer? Yes. So really quickly, isotopes are, um, different versions of elements um, with different neutron ratios. Stable isotopes are those which do not radioactively decay. Um, So in this study, I'm using carbon stable isotope ratios, which we abbreviate CIR. Um, And a while ago, biologists realized that um, of all the plants that exist in the world, um, they tend to break down into two different stable isotope groups uh, based on how they photosynthesize. Um, So we have C3 photosynthesizers and C4 photosynthesizers, um, and that just refers to the number of carbon atoms in the molecule that fixes the carbon dioxide that the plants are taking from the atmosphere. Um, And to, to bring it into our diets, most of the plants we consume are C3 photosynthesizers. However, sugarcane, corn, And um, a few other plants in the diet are actually C4 photosynthesizers, and their carbon isotope ratios are significantly higher than the carbon isotope ratios in the rest of the plants that we eat. So our thinking is that we can use carbon isotope ratios measured in human tissues to identify corn and sugarcane inputs. Awesome. Yeah. As somebody who uh, has delivered stable isotopes and interventions, I'm always envious of how much cheaper it is to use the naturally occurring carbon isotope ratios as opposed to delivering stable isotopes in the diet. You save a good bit of money, although you still need a lot of complicated mass spec. Yes, that's true. These are naturally occurring ratios. Um, So as long as you can verify a trend in a given population, you don't have to do any dosing. Um, You're just measuring measuring what you have. 
Awesome. So for this study, you guys are specifically looking at the carbon isotope ratios in non-essential amino acids. Um, and then can you give a little bit more about the rationale for looking there? So the carbon isotope ratios can be measured in whole tissues. Um, for example, you can measure the ratio in, in plasma or red blood cells. Um, however, what my advisor and others have identified is that um, the relationship between sugar and corn in the, in the whole tissue carbon isotope ratio can actually be confounded by the meat that we consume because a lot of the meat in the United States is raised on corn diets. Um, so Diane had the idea to measure the carbon isotope ratio in specific amino acids, um, in particular non-essential amino acids and specifically alanine, because alanine and certain other amino acids are tightly linked to glucose metabolism. Um, so the thinking is that their carbon isotope ratios will be more affected by sugar-related intakes than they would meat consumption. Awesome. That's a, a really clever idea, a really cool project to get to work on. Um, so how did you guys actually go about, what, what sort of study design did you use to Utilize, or to look at the relationship between carbon isotope ratios and amino acids. Yeah, so this study, the the one that I got to write the paper up about, this is a this is an amazing study, um, a truly unique controlled feeding study um, that took place over the course of twelve weeks um, for each participant. The actual study took years to complete, um, and so we had. We had men um, stay in the NIDDK center in Phoenix, um, and they they stayed there for twelve weeks and were were provided everything that they ate, and so we were able to give them highly controlled diets where um, the main factors that were varied were sugar sweetened beverage, meat, and also fish con fish consumption in this study. Um, and every other aspect of the diet was uh, balanced so that really their carbon isotope ratios were only responding to those intakes. It's awesome. Yeah, from a kind of a feeding study standpoint, it's, uh, you know, you're still thinking of seeing macronutrients manipulated and whatnot, but it's interesting to have to take into account the naturally occurring abundances of these different isotope ratios and have those be the factor that you're varying. I also want to call out that um, you mentioned it took years. I was looking at the clinicaltrials.gov registry and saw that this was first posted in 2010, and now it's 2020 being published. And I uh, just want to highlight how, I mean, this is, feeding studies are so critical uh, for advancing nutrition science, but are so much work to do and well beyond the scope of, of one PhD, hopefully. Hopefully it's not 10 years to finish your PhD. <laughs> Yes, I'm very lucky to be collaborating with the people down at NIDDK because this was a truly heroic effort, definitely not a one lab project. Um, awesome. So you guys basically then are looking at the carbon isotope ratio changes in response to these different diets where the natural isotope ratios are varying across the different arms based on whether they were getting more sugar sweet beverages and more meat. Um, so what outcomes did you guys look at then? And what? And you had some interesting kind of results here, if you want to describe them for us. 
Yes. So all of my outcomes are just these carbon isotope ratios of different amino acids. And I generally broke them down into non-essential and essential amino acids. Um, With the essential amino acids, we know that we're not producing them. And so they're coming directly from our diet. And so we really expected that the carbon isotope ratios in those essential amino acids um, would respond to, to meat consumption and not be affected at all by sugar. And that was indeed what we found. (laughs) All of our essential amino acid carbon isotope ratios were higher in meat consumers versus not meat consumers. Um, But the main and really exciting result of this study was the the carbon isotope ratio in our non-essential amino acids. And I'll just mention one specifically, um, alanine, which I mentioned earlier, has that tight metabolic link with glucose. It showed um, a strong response to sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. It was clearly higher in SSB consumers versus those who did not. Awesome. That's really uh, a great like finding that might be potentially useful in being a sort of objective biomarker of sugar sweetened beverage exposure. Yes, exactly. Especially for the sugar-related intakes, which are prone to bias in self-report measures. Um, an objective mo- biomarker um, would be an excellent tool. So can you give us a bit of an idea about the interventions here as far as how much sugar-sweetened beverage and meat intake uh, individuals were consuming? Was it pretty similar to the standard American diet, um, or did you go really high versus really low? Yeah, so the sugar-sweetened beverage um, treatment was given as 14% of daily energetic intake, Um and I think that is a, it's a little bit higher than average sugar-sweetened beverage consumption in, in U.S. adults. Um, and the meat was 19% of daily energetic requirements, which is uh, pretty close to average. Um, we also, that, that other third intake fish was only 6% of um, kilocalories because fish intake in general is lower in U.S. adults. And that was relevant more to to other outcomes we measured. And so can you go into a bit of the rationale behind doing fish versus meat? Yes. So this this relates more to actual nitrogen isotope ratios, um, which in a previous study, we published the the whole tissue carbon and nitrogen isotope ratios, um, actually published in AJCN. Uh, And... I will be looking at the nitrogen isotope ratios of amino acids um, as discriminating between fish and meat consumers. Um, But yeah, in nitrogen isotope ratios um, in nature and in humans relate to your, to to how many animals you eat and how high up in the food chain they are. And so I was kind of interested, too, in kind of looking at plasma versus red blood cells, given that red blood cells turn over a bit more slowly than plasma. And, you know, we love red blood cell biomarkers and nutrition as far as longer term intakes. Um, When looking at like red blood cell essential fatty acid status and folates that kind of plasma can be affected by the most recent meal effect and whatnot. So can you go a bit into the rationale and and some of the results that you found that were maybe different between uh, looking at plasma and looking at red blood cells? Yeah. So isotope biologists, isotope ecologists um, have known for a while that the the isotope ratio 
turnover is related to tissue turnover. Um, so plasma in general turns over faster than red blood cells in our body. Um, and so we did expect the carbon isotope ratios that we measured in plasma to come into equilibrium with the diet faster than the carbon isotope ratios we measured in red blood cells. And that, that was another component of the study that I did was to measure the carbon isotope ratios in biweekly samples from the beginning of the study to the end of the study um, to see how carbon isotopes were changing and to give an indication of whether they were in equilibrium with the diet or not. And so what you can see in the paper is that in general, amino acids in plasma were in equilibrium with the diet by the end of the 12 weeks. Um, however, some of the amino acids that we measured in red blood cells may not have been because red blood cells do t turn over um, much slower on a, on a month time frame. Awesome. That's a really cool, hopefully we'll be able to use this in the future to look at red blood cell non-essential amino acids as biomarkers of, of dietary exposures. So I know you guys looked at these values in, in largely a controlled feeding study in healthy individuals. Um, I guess if you were to design a, a future study, maybe testing some of these out um, in, uh, for example, an inpatient population, a clinical study, I, I'm just thinking kind of out loud that maybe situations where muscle protein synthesis and breakdown is altered, where you're getting like excessive alanine um, being produced, would that kind of uh, limit the utility of these carbon isotope ratios by sort of diluting the pool? I think those things would definitely have to be considered. There's not a lot of literature on how metabolism affects stable isotope ratios um, carbon isotope ratios generally, and very little on how it affects amino acid um, isotope ratios. So yeah, if you had patients in unique metabolic conditions, you would definitely have to take that into account. Um, this The validation we're working towards is for general populations right now. Awesome. So apart from... Um you know, looking at the nitrogen isotope ratios, what other future directions, if you could kind of take this study anywhere, what, what would be your next step? And maybe what is, I don't, know, I don't want to give any spoilers away about what Dr. O'Brien's doing next, but uh, where do you think that this would be most useful, I guess, for other investigators potentially looking at this? Um, well, for right now, the next steps are, you know, the different stages of validation. Um, so looking at carbon isotope ratios in slightly less controlled populations um, and perhaps in, in a general population. But yes, the hope, I mean, the kind of study I would like to design, you know, potentially for a postdoc or in the future um, would be using these, these carbon isotope ratios as, as your proxy for sugar-sweetened beverage or added sugar intake. Um, the goal is to actually see um, how well they also correlate with added sugars in general. Um, because while a lot of U.S. adults don't necessarily consume sugar-sweetened beverage, everyone's getting added sugar. Um, awesome. Yeah, I could also see these being used, I guess, in in diet trials, particularly if you're trying to lower sugar sweetened beverage, you might want you might expect from baseline the carbon isotope ratios to start to shift if you're actually successful in, in doing so. I imagine the dietary guidelines 
dietary patterns uh, with not being overly meat heavy and, and overly sugar heavy, you'd expect them to be much more uh, much more consumption of C3 uh, photosynthesizers relative to C4. Yes. Yeah. If you reduce your added sugar intake, you will see a lower carbon isotope ratio given a certain person in a certain population. Cool. Do we know about these carbon isotope ratios in any other settings? Um, like, for example, has anybody looked at them in breast milk or in other, other bodily fluids that we can maybe look at or monitor intake? For whole tissue carbon isotope ratios, um, people are looking at different tissues. Um, hair, hair is a very potentially um, useful tissue because hair is easy and non-invasive to, to collect. Um, I know people are considering urinary biomarkers, um, carbon isotope ratios in urine. Um, I am not actually sure about breast milk. Um, that's actually an area I'm interested in is um, prenatal nutrition and, and added sugar. Um, I'm sure somebody somebody has certainly measured isotope ratios in breast milk. Um, although I don't think anyone's done the amino acid carbon isotope ratios. Um, yeah, I just think about it as, you know, you would expect formula uh, to be a, a quite high in C4 producers relative maybe to breast milk. But I, I, that would have to be validated and probably dependent on mom's diet. But so if you were talking with uh, – researcher who's doing a feeding study or intervention study, and they wanted to use carbon isotope ratios as maybe a, a marker of uh, adherence or monitoring of some sort, uh, what sort of study time frame would they need to use um, for these not, uh, carbon isotope ratios, non-essential amino acids to kind of get a feel for sugar-sweet beverage or just, you know, uh, C4-derived sugar intake? If you just want to get a sense of whether they're complying with your dietary information, intervention and provided you have isotope information from baseline. So before they started the intervention, you will start to see changes in the carbon isotope ratio within a couple weeks. Yeah. So if you're doing a, a quickie one week feeding study, this is maybe not the, the tool for you, but the typical four to 12 week feeding study that we see is maybe useful. Yes. If you're looking for change. Is there anything you want to say about the mass spec side of all this stuff? either cost or time or, or difficulty. So to get these amino acid carbon isotope ratios, it is a multi-step process. It does take multiple days. Um, the chemistry is a little bit complicated and we're still working on optimizing the laboratory methods to bring cost and time down. Um, right now as a grad student, I have unlimited time to work on these yeah. samples. <laughs> You just paid so well for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is something that you don't need like an in, uh, expensive internal standards for. So in, in some senses, because you're just looking at the, the ratio internal to a sample. So that's, it's, I think of the cost of, you know, when we were doing targeted quantification of a number of metabolites, buying the labeled version of it to have as an internal standard for hundreds to thousands of samples is, is quite expensive. That's true. Um, we do have standards um, for our measurements, but they're just they're just pure amino acids. Um, we don't have to have any labeled standards. So for researchers that are hoping to utilize carbon isotope ratios, maybe want to hire you as a postdoc in the future or, or collaborate with Dr. O'Brien, um, 
what are some, I guess, tips and tricks for using these things to know maybe about like sample volume, cost, the how uh, annoying is the mass spec? I, I love mass spec. It's never annoying. But for some folks that <laughs> might perceive it to be, is this a, a quantitatively a difficult thing to to really get at? So I definitely say if you are a clinical or nutrition-sided person interested in these biomarkers, you certainly should collaborate with an isotope lab, um, preferably with people who can help you advise you how to prepare your sample and who will analyze the sample and walk through the data with you. Our sample requirements, it's actually part of what I really like about this biomarker is you don't actually need that much sample. Right now I'm working on the on the scale of microliters of plaza, plasma or RBC, um, you know, like three microliters of RBC or 10 microliters of plasma, and I can get excellent measurements. Um, but also, unlike a lot of metabolites that people often measure in plasma that are really sensitive to freeze thaws or to being at room temperature for long periods of time, um, the carbon isotope ratios um, are pretty stable to, to however you handle them. Um, so I think they're fairly unique in that way in terms of a biomarker and also leaves you, um, you know, wide open for potential for different kinds of archive samples. Doesn't just have to be frozen, never thawed. And so in the sample processing, are, are you guys hydrolyzing all the plasma proteins into their individual free amino acids? Yeah, that's what we're doing now. Got you. So clinical measures of the total protein might also influence the sample requirements maybe, or is it just so sensitive that probably doesn't matter all that much? Like if you had very low albumin in a patient population, do you think that would matter? I have made these measurements in at least hundreds of samples right now, if not hundreds of individuals. And the variation from individual to individual is, doesn't seem to be a significant factor right now. Um, I hydrolyze the same volume for every sample and get get measurement um, amplitudes within comparable ranges. Awesome. That's really cool. So we've talked about this as a marker of dietary exposure, typically. Is there any other uses of carbon isotope ratios you think the, coming from the ecology world that uh, the nutrition world might kind of uh, take advantage of? I think there are there are more applications because our carbon isotope ratios are so sensitive to both sources and processes. Um, but I think we're still working towards that. Right now, we're still validating the effects of diet on carbon isotope ratios. Um, I mean, in the on the animal ecology side of things, um, one really cool application is linking carbon isotope ratios to microbiome and um, microbiome changes in relation to diet. Um, so I know that's that's a potential future field, um, at least in animals. And I'm sure there are more interesting applications in humans that we're yet to develop. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I really encourage anybody who is interested in these sort of natural biomarkers and, and much cheaper version of using stable isotopes <laughs> to check out Jessica's paper. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for a postdoc, uh, Jessica, I think will be graduating here in a couple of years, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was super interesting to learn about your work and um, 
Hopefully there's some folks out there who have big cohort studies that want to take a look at carbon isotope ratios of non-essential amino acids as biomarkers of sugar-sweetened beverage exposure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And we are, we are always looking for new populations to make measurements in. So, Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you.